Welcome to episode number 11 in the series on the Holy Sacrifice at the Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ave Virgo Potens, ora pro nobis. That is, Hail, Virgin Most Powerful, pray for us. Last episode, we spoke about the importance of language within the context of the Mass. We spoke a little bit about Latin, Hebrew, Greek, silence itself, and even the vernacular. And then we moved from there into the preparation of the priest. What prayers does he say? What should be going in theory through his mind, both as he's vesting, but also afterwards in order to form an intention for that Holy Mass and, and, and other things. This was to kind of capstone, in a sense, the rest of uh, the, the preparations that take place. So we spoke about architecture and music and the inheritance, language, as well as various colors and vestments and prayers that are said. And so now the idea is that we will move into the particular parts of the Mass themselves, what they mean, why we have them, so that hopefully that once we understand this theology that kind of underlies some of these parts of the Mass, that hopefully it'll help us to all the more invest ourselves. it remind us what we're doing. Hopefully it'll also make it a little bit more difficult for us to be distracted, which so oftentimes happens, and unfortunately, so easily it occurs. But the more I think that we understand what we're doing in the Mass, then perhaps more easily we'll be able to remain focused, devoted, and intentional in the way in which we pray. So the very beginning parts of the Mass, let's call the introductory rites of the Mass. The first is the entrance antiphon. Now, this is not always said. In fact, oftentimes it is replaced with a hymn of some sort or another, but not always. And indeed, in fact, the church seems to prefer that the entrance antiphon along with a psalm is something that is chanted when possible. The entrance antiphon is a part of the Mass that, as the germ says, I will just quote directly from this. Again, the germ is the general instruction of the Roman Missal. It is what gives some kind of increased rubrics or increased instruction as to the way in which we celebrate the order of things as well as in some ways the purpose of some of these parts of the Mass. Germ 47, quote, The purpose of this chant is to open the celebration, foster the unity of those who have been gathered, introduce their thoughts to the mystery of the liturgical season or festivity, and accompany the procession of the priest and ministers, end quote. So just to recap what exactly that said, as well as to expound on it just a little bit, the purpose of this chant is to open the celebration, foster the unity of those who have been gathered, that is, we are one. And so we begin with this unifying verse, this unifying psalm, this unifying antiphon. When you think of or hear the word antiphon, perhaps think of something that goes back and forth. For instance, uh, the entrance antiphon should be something that is said where it's a verse that is said, oftentimes taken from a psalm, and then you have another psalm verse, and then you repeat that antiphon, you repeat that verse that was originally said, and then another verse from the psalm, and then you repeat the antiphon verse again, and then another uh, psalm. So it enables the, the people not only to uh, kind of enter into the Mass by way of this doorway of Scripture, 
because it's the psalm that's being said. But in addition to this, it also allows them to be unified in that hopefully they're all joining in as they chant the entrance antiphon, the verse itself, the opening verse. And then it's also an easier way for the people to learn as well as to participate within chant without having fully learned it before. So in other words, it's different from a hymn. It's not something that is going to be changing as far as the words and whatnot, but rather when the choir introduces the entrance antiphon, then the people will repeat that and then the choir will come back and sing one verse that the people don't know and then the people will come back with the choir and join in with the entrance antiphon. And so it is them and it is enabling them to join in with kind of the easiest part of the of the the, the entrance antiphon chant while at the same time not fully understanding or knowing exactly what uh, the whole setting or the whole context of that music is. Secondly, the kissing of the altar. As you well know, the priest then approaches the altar. He genuflects with the servers, deacon, whoever's there, and then they approach the altar and kiss the altar. And particularly, they kiss the altar stone, and ideally they kiss basically where that relic within the altar stone is. We've already spoken about uh, the relics of the saints, where this idea comes from, all the way from the, the, the earliest parts of our church with the persecutions of so many of the Christians. So the kissing of the altar has a couple of different meanings, I think, that we should keep in mind as we see the priest do this. One, he demonstrates an act of love, of reverence, of devotion immediately to the altar, this place of sacrifice. Again, the place where heaven and earth meet, where the sacrifice of Christ is offered by the church, in particular by that priest, uh, in union with the people, to the Father. And then the Father bestows these blessings upon the altar and out to the people through the priest. In addition to this, though, the, the altar, as I've also mentioned, represents Christ. And so immediately the priest is giving reverence and adoration to Christ. Christ is the cornerstone rejected by the builders. And so that is also something that is represented in the altar, which is oftentimes built by stone or by wood. The saints also are represented in the relic of the martyr and likewise have gathered around us and around the altars, both through in their own time throughout history, as well as they are here with us now. And so in that relic, as the priest kisses, he recognizes his need and his, his dependence upon the prayers of those who have gone before us, as well as the fact that none of this is possible without their prayers, without their lives, without their evangelization, without their efforts and their work, without cooperating with the graces of God in their own days and day and age. And so we have been handed this inheritance because of what they have done. Their sweat, their toil, their blood is the reason why we have the faith. It's the reason why we have the, this, this absolutely beautiful form of worship that is the Mass. It's the reason why we have this opportunity to gather together and to give God what truly does please Him. That is, His very own Son. So, in the kissing of the altar, we, we recognize truly that the angels and the saints are beautiful parts of our faith and very much a part of us in unity. As long as we are in the state of grace, we are bound to those in purgatory, bound to those in heaven. And this includes the angels as well. But then in addition to this, they also are gathered around this particular altar. 
that they themselves are here to worship God with us, not only to help us with their prayers, not only have they helped us in their past, but also they continue to help us and to worship with us. So in a sense, it's like an image of heaven, because in heaven we will all be with one voice worshiping God forever and ever, which is such a beautiful thing to think about, while at the same time in Mass we begin doing that here and now on earth. In addition to this, the priest also opposes Judas, I think, with this kiss of the altar. Because if you remember, Judas betrayed our Lord with a kiss. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, and it is this kiss from the priest where he is begging the Lord to help me remain faithful throughout this Mass. Help me to stand strong. Don't allow me to sell you off, to betray you with my thoughts, with my uh, tepidity, that is with my lukewarmness, with my lack of faith or lack of zeal. Don't allow me to lose sight of you and what I am doing in this most holy sacrifice of the Mass. Secondly, the priest is standing at the altar between God and man. Therefore, it is right for him to first salute Christ and the saints before the salutation, the Lord be with you, that is given to the people. And so, in a sense, it's a movement towards Christ before a movement towards the people. In addition to this, we always move towards Christ. A priest should always, in a sense, move towards Christ in the realization that what we have to give to the people is only what we receive from Christ. So in a sense, we go to him before we go to the people. This is uh, the idea of or the ideas, as we've gone over several points, in the kissing of the altar, things to be aware of as you see that. Secondly, we have the greeting that follows the salutation of Christ by the kissing of the altar. Then there is the salutation of the people. The Lord be with you, the priest says, and he opens his hands and closes his hands at that time. This is not the way in which we just say, hey, y'all, how are y'all doing? This is not a way in which we simply just greet the people like a common salutation that you see on the street. Hi, but we plan on doing it in a nice churchy way. That's a grotesque kind of uh, misunderstanding. It, it, it drastically uh, underwhelms, underwhelms the significance of what is occurring there. Let's not underestimate what occurs with even the smallest actions of the priest, the smallest uh, words or phrases, seemingly, of the priest in the Mass. So firstly, we begin with the sign, uh, excuse me, we begin with this uh, salutation by starting off with the, with the sign of the cross first. Uh, and so before we move into the Lord be with you, there is this, this sign of the cross that is made in order to open, in a sense, this sacred liturgy, but at the same time, in order to recognize that all of us, we always begin as Christians, we begin and we end our life, our days, our prayers, everything that we do, hopefully, with the sign of the cross. And why? Because the sign of the cross is so significant for us as Christians. In fact, it is something that is all the way, uh, that, that roots back all the way to apostolic times. And some even say that it begins with Christ himself, that he is the one that instituted this sign of the cross as a sign for Christians, as a sign also of blessing, of protection, as well as of profession of faith. So blessing, protection, and profession of faith. So among other things, when you make the sign of the cross, think, 
I am blessing myself. I am asking God to give me a blessing by the sign of the cross. I am marking my soul, my body, myself in general with the sign that is the sign of my salvation. The sign of divine love made visible to us. Christ on that cross. Then it is also a sign of protection in that it is by way of the cross that we conquer Satan. And so when you are tempted, when you have a difficult time because of some kind of peer pressure, because of some kind of thoughts that you don't want to think about, or because of some kind of uh, other external internal temptations that you encounter, make the sign of the cross. Among other ways in which you defend yourself, like what are called adjurations, blood of Jesus wash over me, or these kinds of prayers, in addition to this, make the sign of the cross, because marking yourself in this cross is the way in which you claim yourself for Christ and you overcome Satan. Then it is blessing, it is spiritual protection, but it is also the profession of our faith. And this is what I want to get into a little bit more, expound on just a little bit more, because in the cross we have the entirety of our faith. Making the sign of the cross is like saying the Nicene Creed, but in a very short, abbreviated way. It's like saying the Apostles' Creed, but in a very short and abbreviated way. We are professing who we are, and who we are is God's. And why? Because of Christ's death and His resurrection. Because of that cross, union with Him. Being His sons and His daughters is possible. Without that cross, it is not possible. So, it is an open profession of faith, and in fact, a very beautiful one. Because when we do so, it's a type of evangelization out in public. When we do so out in public, willingly, as we begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our blessing uh, over the food that we say, let's say, at a restaurant, then we're professing who we are as Christians, as well as we are demonstrating that we are proud to be those Christians, that we are blessed to be that Christian, and that we want and desire others to be the same, to mark themselves in the same way. In the Roman Rite, so let us express in a sense how this is kind of a creed. In the Roman Rite, that is as a Roman Catholic versus a Ukrainian Catholic or uh, many of the other rites, we make the sign of the cross with an open palm and with five fingers extended and together. And the five fingers extended represents the five wounds of Christ. And so we begin by touching the forehead, as we all know, and in the name of the Father, as we say, while we touch the forehead. And this represents God the Father, who is, in a sense, the top of the hierarchy of God himself, the three divine persons. So remember, God is one, but he is three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so God the Father, when you think of him, think of omnipotence, almighty. He's the creator of all. He is the one who wills. He is the one who sins. And it is from him that the, that the Son and the Holy Spirit flow. So in the name of the Father, he is the head within this hierarchy. That doesn't mean that he's greater. It doesn't mean that he's more powerful. It doesn't mean that he's different. It means, yes, he is distinct, but God the Father, there is this hierarchy, there is always order, there is always perfection in God, and, uh, and therefore uh, he is head within the hierarchy, while at the same time we acknowledge that it is one God, and that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, they are co-equal, co-eternal. 
So there is not this God is more powerful and better than God the Son and God the Holy Ghost or anything like that. But we recognize that there is a hierarchy and that he is the one from whom the Son flows. And I, earlier I said the Holy Spirit flows from the Father, and that is true, but the, the Holy Spirit flows from the Father and the Son, as we will so shortly see. So, in the name of the Father. And then as you descend to the bottom of the chest, in the name of the Son. And this is that both a demonstration that the Son flows from the Father. He is begotten or is generated by the Father. Again, this doesn't mean that one day... God the Father somehow said, you know what, I want a son. I'm going to make me a son. In no way did this occur. But rather, if we say that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, that means that God the Father never existed without God the Son. God the Son never existed without God the Holy Ghost. All we are saying is that the Son flows from the Father. Light from light, as we say. There is this flowing, there is this begetting from the Father to the Son, but it is eternal this begetting, this generation, another fancy theological term that is used. And we say that in understanding that, again, God the Father, uh, God the Son flows from God the Father, but it is not in time. It is eternally. It is perfect. Therefore, in addition to this, this movement also represents the fact that God the Son is the one who takes on humanity. He descends into creation. He descends in order to take our nature, in order to die, to rise, to save, and to bring us back to God, the Father. And so, in the name of the Father and of the Son. Also notice that we are saying in the name. We don't say in the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. We say in the name of. This is a profession that we believe in one God, not three gods. We believe in three distinct divine persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, but one God. So in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit as you touch left shoulder and then right shoulder. And in this, we are professing that it is the Holy Spirit that comes from both the Father and the Son in this movement. As well, it is the Holy Spirit that is sent out by the Father and the Son in order for the sake of the sanctification of the church and the salvation of souls by working in the church. And so the Holy Spirit flows from the theological term. Instead of generation, which is given to the Son, the theological term is spiration. Again, these terms uh, being so theologically heavy, not necessary to, to, to remember, but if you're able to, great. But the, the Son is generated by the Father. The Holy Spirit spirates from the Father and the Son. And then in that same way, the mission of the Son resembles that. He is begotten by God the Father alone. And he is sent out by the Father to the earth to take on human nature, etc. But the, the Holy Spirit is spirated from the Father and the Son and then is sent. His mission into the world is, is, is from the Father and the Son. And so their generation or spiration, in a sense, is uh, represented in the mission that they have being sent out to earth. All of this, again, is being expressed in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. None of that is, in, is even to mention the fact that we are making the sign of the cross, which is obviously should be the center of our lives and is the center of all of human existence. As we have spoken about ad nauseum almost, the fact that 
It is the, 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 the cross that stands still while the world revolves around it. That it is the life of Christ that is the pinnacle of all of creation. The Old Testament points to Christ that the New Testament speaks about his life as well as explicates or explains further the loving life and commands that Christ has given while on earth. So all of this we have in this action of the, name, of the Holy Cross. And then in addition to this, it is also an act certainly of faith and of gratitude for what Christ has done, for who God is and the way in which he loves us so clearly uh, shown on the cross. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the priest begins and the people with him and then the people respond, Amen. This is a Hebrew word as I mentioned in the previous episode and it is a Hebrew word that is certainly uh, an affirmation. In other words, it means truly or verily, which is, which is absolutely true. But we don't also want to underestimate this word, that it means more than this. And in fact, it's, 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 a, it's a battle cry in a sense of faith. It is I am profess this profoundly, truly, sincerely, and I'm willing to fight for the sake of what I believe. I'm willing to give myself my life for this truth. That's how firmly I believe this. It is a battle cry of the Christians. Amen. Yes, indeed, I believe fully, even to the extent of shedding my blood, of giving my life in service for the sake of this which I profess. It is also an affirmation of the requests and the praises that are being made. And so as we continue to say amen throughout the Mass, give consideration to what you're saying. Not only that you profess this so sincerely that you're willing to, to fight for it, but in addition that you're saying this to particular praises of God, to particular petitions towards God. Thirdly, the priest, as I said, he begins with the Lord be with you. And this is... Again, not this kind of, hey, y'all, in this churchy language, but rather something more significant. Firstly, it comes from Scripture, as we will see over and over again. So much of what we say in Mass comes from Scripture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Also see Ruth, chapter 2, verse 4. See 1 Samuel 17, 37, and I imagine many other places as well. But this, the Lord be with you, this salutation, it is an act of mediation. Or intercessory. In other words, it begins, it, it belongs to the priest in particular in offering this form of salutation to the people. It is a petition from the priest to God for the people, for the grace of God to be given to the people, that they too may participate well in the Mass and receive in abundance the fruit of the Mass. It expresses the intention of the priest that the people may receive all the good Holy Mother Church desires for them. It is also a request from the priest that divine assistance enable them to pray most effectively within the Mass, and even without it, but particularly within the context of the Mass. In other words, we cannot pray well on our own. This is something also that you have heard me repeat uh, over and over again. Romans chapter 8, verse 26 says, quote, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmity, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself asketh for us with unspeakable groanings. End quote. We need the help of God in order to pray well. And so as I said, this intercessory phrase uh, and, and greeting is this petition to God that we pray well. It is also, I think, directed towards, towards the people as a type of petition in that 
the Lord be with you in that. Pray well. Use this time well. Understand what you're doing. Open your hearts well as I pray for you that this also occurs, that God helps you and enables you to open your heart and to pray well, and that you receive as much as Holy Mother Church, as much as our Lord Jesus desires to give you through the fruit of this Mass. It is repeated several times throughout the Mass because we need God's consistent help. We need to continuously move ourselves back to the recognition of our weakness, of our easily uh, distracted personalities, our easily distracted inclinations, and therefore we need God's help over and over again. So with every utterance of this throughout the Mass, every time you mention or you hear the priest mention this, and every time you respond to this and with your spirit, Give consideration to what you're doing. Give consideration that you are trying to move yourself more deeply in union with that priest, and more deeply in union with God himself in this Mass, as well as to open yourself more fully and to pray more devoutly and humbly. Fourthly, the priest, while saying these words, he separates his hands in what's called the Oron's position. The Oron's position, you might have seen in many different ways. All kinds of priests do it uh, nowadays in, in various ways. In the past, traditionally, it was always done uh, uniformly amongst the priests. And it was done in this way. And the, one of the reasons why is because, firstly, it represents a state of, well, a stance, I should say, of intercession. So it, it belongs to the priest. But in addition to this, it is also a way in which the priest represents Christ crucified. That his hands, at least to some degree or another, are extended as Christ's were extended out on that cross. Well, he is the great, perfect, eternal intercessor. He is the high priest, the eternal high priest. And therefore, in recognition of this, as well as in the fact that we put on Christ, the priest puts Christ on for the sake of the Mass and intercedes between God and man, then he also imitates Christ in this way. And so he imitates him in the sign of the cross. And so he holds his hands out. But traditionally, why it was this way rather than to put your hands out farther, even though at some places and in some orders and in some uh, religious orders, that is, uh, and at some times throughout the Mass, that may have changed. The, a, a large part of the history of the church, it is done this way because Although we recognize the importance of the stance of Christ on that cross, the church also wanted to ensure that the priest is not bringing unnecessary attention to himself. In other words, the priest should always be acting in a way that is hopefully helping and aiding people to think of God, not of himself. And so the actions that the priest would take, whatever they were, would be done concisely, would be done directly rather than kind of fumbling around, but also they would be done modestly in that they would be kind of within the breadth of the shoulders of the priest rather than making large movements that drew attention to himself. So none of this is necessarily um, useful to go into, uh, at least for most people, but just understanding why you might see different positions because no longer does the church require that the priest uh, have his hands within the breadth of the shoulders of, of, uh, of the priest. And therefore, many priests have kind of moved outwardly, which is totally fine according to, to what the church asks nowadays. But knowing that that Oron's position or that Oron's meaning praying position of the priest Although this has been done uh, in particular by all people in the past, because uh, a type of praying is that people, especially early in the church, would be praying in a way that was uh, 
cruciform, in other words, uh, the form of the cross itself. But in a particular way within the context of the liturgy, it belongs to the priest because it is the priest is the, who is the intercessor. And so the priest opens his hands in a sense asking God, give me these blessings so that I bestow them on these people. And so in a sense, that priest, as he says, the Lord be with you, it's this kind of, if you kind of think of this, this, this descent of the blessings of God that are being moved outwardly towards the people to, to whom he is addressing. And so this Oron's position is, is this reception in order to dispense of these blessings and these graces that come from God. But then he quickly will close his hands, the priest that is, because he absolutely has nothing on his own. He depends entirely on Christ. And so this closing of the hands indicates a recollection of mind and of spirit of devotion, as well as the surrendering of oneself up to God and a repose in God, a resting in God, in that I am fulfilling this role as priest, but nothing is done on my own. I am absolutely dependent upon God himself for all these blessings. For anything that I can give to these, my flock, it comes from God himself. I am simply a conduit. I am simply a medium, that is, by which God is able to bestow blessings in a particular way and for particular people. As I said, the Orans is an act of intercession by the priest, and therefore it belongs to the priest alone. So when the, pre when the people respond, and with your spirit, they should not move their hands in any way, because it is not this type of hello. I think a lot of people not realizing how significant the Lord be with you is in what the priest is doing, the people want, in a sense, to give themselves, which is a, a beautiful desire, and to participate well in the Mass, in that they mimic the priest. But the priest has a particular role that should not be mimicked. It's a particular role. If the people had the same role, then they should mimic him, but they do not. They have a very different role within the context of the liturgy. And therefore, they should not open their hands in an Oron's position. They should not do this either, which I think is them, in a sense, just kind of waving, as if the, 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 the greeting, the Lord be with you, is simply, hey, y'all, how y'all doing? But that's not what it is. It's something far more profound than that. And this Oron's position is something theologically significant, not simply a wave to the people. And therefore, the people are not waving back. And so this, something, this has become a, a, a type of custom, unfortunately, at least within America, that has become very normal. And it needs to be, I think, rooted out of the liturgy and the minds of the people because I think it in some ways diminishes what's actually occurring. And it speaks to a misunderstanding within the people, I believe. But not in any way am I suggesting that the people are sinning or somehow doing something absolutely terrible in doing so. It's just something that is caught on and I think something that needs to be rooted out because it does not belong within the liturgy. As the people respond and with your spirit, they are saying, as Monsignor Gur says, quote, out of gratitude for the imparted salutation and blessing, the people express the wish that the Lord would, with his enlightening and strengthening grace, replenish and penetrate the spirit of the celebrant, of the priest, that is, that he may, as a man of God, a truly spiritual man, be enabled to present in a worthy manner the petitions and supplications of the whole church." End quote. That also is a beautiful quote that also expresses very well, I believe, what the pre people are doing in responding to the Lord be with you salutation. 
And with your spirit, they're saying that we absolutely are hoping and praying and presenting to God the very need that we have and the priest has that the priest be holy, that the priest be open, that the priest be moved, that the priest be helped by God in this sacred liturgy. And therefore, much is occurring in this quick, easy dialogue between the priest and the people. The Lord be with you. May this truly, richly bless you, this fruit of the Mass. May you be united to me in this uh, particular worship of our Lord. May you be open to receive everything, and may you pray well and humbly in this Mass. And the people respond, may you lead us in the proper way, with a proper devoted heart. And therefore, may this Mass be something that is mutually enriching for both of us. And so the priest needs the prayers of the people. And this is evident in the fact that the Church understands this so well that she has instilled several different times throughout the Mass this dialogue. And although at various times of the Mass it can take a little bit different of a meaning or emphasize, let's say, uh, more, more or less, a particular part of the meaning of this dialogue, that the priest is absolutely in need of it and the church understands this well. Just as the people are absolutely in need of the priest's good intentions and actions and intercessory role there at the Mass. St. Paul ends his second letter to St. Timothy Quote, the Lord Jesus Christ be with thy spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. End quote. 2 Timothy 4, 22. Just showing again scriptural evidence within the context of the Mass over and over again. Sixthly, the people do not copy the priest with the Oran's position. Sorry, I, just to repeat this one more time, um, just to instill this, that this is a position of the priest, the Orons, and therefore it is not something uh, to, to, to be copied because what the priest is doing there is interceding, although the people respond to him. And although the people are interceding for the priest in a way, in that they are praying for him, it is in a different role, in a different context, in the way in which they intercede for the priest versus the priest for the people. Moving to the next part, mass part, right a ritual within, sub-ritual, let's say, within the context of the Mass, is the act of penance. Because God's power is principally expressed in His mercy, and we recognize the importance of clean hearts, we begin the liturgy with a devout application of forgiveness. Also very necessary, also very old. In other words, the Church has for centuries and centuries understood beginning the Mass with a petition and confession of one's sins, an act of penance is a very good and very just and right thing to do. This act of penance, it's not like going to the sacrament of confession, which is far more superior than making this simple prayer uh, with the people, but rather it is something that should be moving us towards a greater disposition of humility as well as of openness to receive the graces and the mercy of God. It should move us to a greater sorrow as well as a greater recognition of how unworthy we truly are, that God in His goodness is the sole reason why we are here at this Mass. That without Him, without His goodness, without His gifts, without His blessings, there's no way that we would have the Mass. There's no way that we would continue as a, as a church. There's no way we would be, ever have been built as a church. And there's no way that we, 2,000 years later, 
would be participating in this Mass, individually as well as collectively. And so we are absolutely dependent upon Him. And this should help us to understand that as well as to approach God more appropriately as we undergo this Mass. To approach God appropriately is to acknowledge humbly our many faults, our words, our deeds, our omissions, as well as our great weakness, over and over again, our weakness, but always keeping our focus on God who is good, on God who can help, on God who can strengthen us, on God whose life we participate in. Strictly from uh, the goodness of God, as I said, comes this mercy, as well as strictly from his goodness comes this possibility to enter into the Mass and to pray well in the Mass. Therefore, we beg mercy from God, and we use the Blessed Virgin in particular and in a name uh, for her intercessory prayers for the mercy of God to be poured upon us. As well, we pray to all of the saints and all of the angels to be here to help us and to pray for us as we engage in this Mass. So not only is the priest and the people uniting their prayers mutually together for the sake of each other in praying well, but also we all together commend ourselves to the saints and the angels to their prayers that they also be engaged for the sake of our uh, use and benefit as well as reception of graces. Thirdly, we move to the Kyrie. Sometimes this is considered part of the act of uh, penance, and sometimes it's, it's not. I would consider it not a part of the act of penance, uh, traditionally speaking. However, because the act of penance changes, therefore, or at least there are various options, I should say, for the act of penance, that the Kyrie is sometimes uh, implemented within it. For instance, the first option of the Kyrie, excuse me, of the act of penance is, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, etc., as we just spoke about, where we petition Blessed Virgin, the saints and angels to, to be, well, to, to be with us and to help us, as well as we petition our own brothers and sisters for their continued prayers for us. But then after this occurs, the Kyrie. Uh, the Kyrie is, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. This is Greek, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Kyrie eleison. And as we spoke about Greek, being one of those languages that was nailed to the cross of Christ is a sanctified language. And we see from the earliest times of the church, the Kyrie in the Greek has been used over and over and over again for centuries and centuries and centuries because of the Greek language, because of the history and the context of the church at the time and throughout all of the centuries. Well, always that context is that we need more mercy. We need continuously to call to God. And we see that not only was there a triple Kyrie, that is Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Kyrie eleison, but in fact a ninefold Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Christ eleison, Christ eleison, etc. So three, three, and three. And that it has been understood that this Kyrie is something that is invoking each distinct divine person of the Trinity. So the first Kyrie eleison, is directed towards God the Father. Christ eleison, obviously God the Son, and Kyrie eleison the third, God the Holy Ghost or God the Holy Spirit. We are always in need of His mercy and therefore these words should be something that are on our lips rather regularly, not only within the context of the Mass, but also just in our normal day, and our normal day, our normal calendar, uh, because when we 
recognize that we sin, Kyrie eleison, Christ eleison, Kyrie eleison. When we need something, God have mercy on me. When we come against some difficulty or some tragedy, God have mercy on my soul. Lord, have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Always, over and over again, doing so. As well as we repeat these words, and the more that we do so, ideally we're moved to, again, greater and greater meek and humble and contrite heart that opens us and disposes us well to receive the gifts of the Mass. Then we move. Then we move to this most glorious chant, the Gloria. And so we move to this, this, this act of penance and this Kyrie, this Lord, please have mercy on us, lowly sinners. And then we express the great abundant joy that is our God and the salvation that He offers us. The Gloria is a jubilant chant expressing the importance of the Holy Trinity. In fact, when you say glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. That this is called a, a doxology, that is uh, giving glory from the Greek. But the gloria is, in a sense, the, 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 the greater, the larger, the most significant of the doxologies. That is, in the gloria, we're just expounding greatly, and in a most jubilant way, the glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning. Prayer. And so, in the Gloria, we are expressing our absolute adoration and love for the Holy Trinity, for the work of salvation that is done by the Holy Trinity. Again, God wills and sins. God the Son fulfills the will and dies. God the Holy Spirit applies those merits and those gifts to the people by way of the church and particularly the Mass and the other sacraments. And so, we have the work of each distinct divine person of the Holy Trinity, we have the action of God Himself. True joy is only possible when we acknowledge God's greatness, when we acknowledge how much we need Him, and therefore sing well or say well, depending on what's, what's occurring at that particular Mass that you're at, when, especially in, the, in those words when you say, we praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you. Such a profound part of that uh, gloria, of that doxology, of that chant. We are expressing the heavenly and continuous praises of the angels and of the saints in which they are engaged in heaven and around the throne of God, that they are united with us, especially as we pray the Gloria in the Mass, and that we are mimicking what they are doing at all times in heaven. And so this is called the hymn of the angels. And when you consider the Gloria, or when you participate in the Gloria, imagine yourself there at the throne of God with all of the angels, with all of the saints, in the most jubilant and glorious and beautiful chant, voices, harmonies, giving glory to God. Imagine that, and hopefully it will be easier for you to truly engage in true and humble worship of God. But then we see Cardinal Wiseman, no uh, way uh, diminishes the true glory of the Gloria. Uh, he says, quote, No composition ever lent itself more perfectly to the musician's skill. None ever afforded better play to the rich and rapid succession of every mode, gay and grave. None better supplied the slow and entreating cadence, or the full and powerful chorus. It is truly the hymn of the angels. End quote. Then, from the Gloria, which is not something that is said, as you well know, at, at every Mass, but rather it is said at the highest of the feast days, as well as it is said at 
the uh, Sunday Mass, every holy day of obligation, certainly would have a, a gloria, at least of the, the ones that are of the most jubilant. So there are certain times in the Mass, although it is a very significant feast day, it is one where there is no gloria because of the somber tone and idea of that Mass. The Collect. The Collect is the opening prayer. So after the Gloria, the priest says, the, uh, let us pray, which is the proper invitation for us to once again further reunite ourselves in one body, in one sacrifice, in one mission, in the uh, jubilant and glorious praise and adoration of our God. The opening prayer, in a sense, continues the way the entrance antiphon sets the tone. As I said, the entrance antiphon is something that expresses unity among the people, but it also unites us with the feast day or the particular time of year, the, the, the season that is being celebrated at that Mass. So the antiphon that you would have for the Easter season would look different than the antiphon that you'll have for the Lenten season because there's a different tone in those seasons. And therefore, the collect is something that kind of reiterates that emphasis on the season of the year, the liturgical season that is, as we've already mentioned in the past episodes, as well as the, the, the feast day in particular. For instance, if we are celebrating the great feast of the Assumption of our Blessed Lady, that that will have its own particular entrance antiphon, and that the collect will reiterate what we're celebrating that day, that is, our Blessed Lady, Assumption into Heaven, Body and Soul. So the words come, the word collect, why it's called that rather than saying opening prayer, is because of the Latin word that is collectio. In other words, that this collect is called such because the idea is that the priest is gathering those prayers and those intentions and those needs of the people himself at this time. So when he says, let us pray, there should be a moment of silence between that entrance, let us pray, as well as the prayer itself. And the reason why is because that is the moment in which the people are being invited to pray, but to pray their own intentions and to place them in union with the priest. And so this collect is this gathering where the priest says, let us pray, and the people then have this moment of silence, as well as the priest, in order to put all of your own petitions in order. Make your own prayer. That's where you pray your way. And then the priest continues on with the prayer of the church to, in a sense, finish the prayers of the people. And so it's this beautiful thing where there is this gathering together of all of the prayers and needs of the people that are there present at that Mass for the sake of those intentions to be answered and to give glory to God in asking Him for His blessings and help. Our prayers are the proper accompaniment to the sacrifice that is offered. So never forget that although this act, this liturgical act is done by the church as a whole, is offered in union with Christ, is the offering of Christ himself, is this sacrifice that is far superior than anything that we individually could ever give to God, we still must individually give to God. And we should accompany our individual gifts, selves, sacrifices, prayers, petitions, needs, etc. with the prayer of the Mass, the prayer of the church as a whole which, of course, we are a part of. The collects 
will have praise, they will have thanksgiving, and they will have petition with each one. They generally end with praise to the Holy Trinity. That is, quote, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. The more that the church reiterates this, and notice how Trinitarian the Mass is. In other words, next time you go to Mass, try to find all of the times that you hear the mention of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost in some way or another, either in the Eucharistic prayers or in the colics and, and, and other prayers themselves, perhaps in the antiphons and other places. But noticing that always the church understands that we must ask always in the name of God, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And over and over again, we move back to this understanding that the power, the force of our prayer is in God himself. That not only are we in need of him for his blessings, but we are also in need of him to help us to pray properly, as we already discussed when we were discussing the uh, movement and the uh, salutation of the priest, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, the response of the people. So the hands are extended again in intercessory prayer as Christ's hands were extended on the cross. And so the priest has his hands extended particularly in the collect, in the opening prayers themselves. These are addressed to God on behalf of the people. And so once again, there is this, this intercessory um, stance and action called the orons during that time. So, again, we have covered some of the opening and introductory rites of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, beginning with uh, the, the, the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit with the entrance antiphon, as well as the Lord be with you, the greeting, the salutation, the dialogue that takes place. We went over the act of penance. We went over the Gloria. We went over, as well, the collect itself, the Kyrie, all of these parts are beautiful parts that should not become so redundant. Over and over again, remember, as I spoke about the importance of architecture, and I spoke about the importance of veils in particular, veiling the chalice and, and, and veiling the tabernacle and the veil that Latin and silence produce for the language, etc., is that it keeps things from becoming ordinary or common. In the same way, hopefully, knowing more about these parts will help you to work harder against allowing things to become very common, mundane, or ordinary. For instance, when the priest ends, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. How often do we, and I say we, in other words, the priest and the people, actually hear and pray those words so much as say them as it's just simply a common and ordinary way in which we as Catholics end our prayer? How many times does that do nothing more than just trigger a response of amen from the people, rather than actually being something that we truly and devoutly and humbly are praying well. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he help you to enter more fully into every Mass. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Mm -hmm.